Hi everyone. So this may or may not be a long podcast. I'm going to take a few breaks here and there. Uh, I know I'm going to stop it when I start coughing. You may hear some buzzes from people messaging me. So it'll probably be as unprofessional as all my other podcasts. And uh, I also have to warn you, I am still dealing with the after effects of COVID. So you may or may not hear dead space for about 10 seconds or five seconds or three seconds while I stop and I don't know, maybe cough my brains out for a few minutes. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I'll do my best to keep it as unprofessional as possible. I promise there will be no sort of professionalism in here. And uh, that includes you possibly hearing some bing from Messenger or or stuff like that. I don't like to edit. It just takes too much time and I'm too lazy. So, let's begin our discussion. Artificial intelligence programming. And uh, I'm going to go back and forth between any number of concepts here. So if you're looking for a well-organized, well-thought-out, this is section one, this is section two, not going to happen. Just not going to happen. I'm going to be as disorganized and cluttered as I can possibly be. Because it's fun. (laughs) Uh, Anyway... I'm going to try and include what I know from various things and uh, all that good stuff. So feel free to enjoy a lot of pole poking if you want, or, you know, poke holes and whatever I say. You can try and say, I'm a computer scientist, you can't do that, whatever. I I really, really don't care. Um, Most of this is, or most of these things I'm going to be saying are generalities. So if you want me to give you programming code on artificial intelligence, well, I'm not going to be doing that. Besides, it wouldn't really be effective anyway. I mean, how often is programming code changed, right? Like JavaScript, only even in its basic form, has experienced multiple iterations since it first began, and I, I, you, you can't even get JavaScript from the first year or two it came out to run unless you're actively uh, running it on a simulation or you know like a virtual desktop or virtual. Um, platform or reducing your Java you know JavaScript uh, function or, or installation from version whatever it is now down to version whatever it was back then right oh yeah get used to that me using the word whatever yeah I'm not really interested in looking up specifics so Prepare for one of the most worthless, useless 
longest podcast episodes you've ever had. As I rattle off uh, all sorts of AI stuff. Oh yeah, you're also going to hear a reference to my own video, my own um, video game, which was screwed over by a programmer that thought that he knew more about AI programming than I did and couldn't even get the pieces to move. I wound up having to threaten him with a lawsuit. Had to get a lawyer in order to to go after him for taking money from me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've got I've got very little patience for know-it-all programmers that know less than I do. So, anyway, um, let's begin. No, let's end the introduction with this basic statement. No matter what you do in programming, framework or flow of how the program functions is more important than the actual code you use to get it to function. That doesn't, that doesn't to say that the code itself isn't vastly important. I mean, like if you're going to balance out like framework flow with actual, you know, versus actual code used, you're probably going to wind up into anywhere from a 51 to 60% range for framework and flow and a 40% range for the language that it's used to program it or the, the, the scripting or programming you use or how you approach it. Uh, because framework deals with the method out, methodology. You need to understand the methodology before you put down a single line of code. Like, what's the flow for Hello World? Well, the flow is uh, you need the computer to respond to the program being activated, and you want the computer to convey a message to the user, possibly after the user does something. So it's either turning the program on or hitting a key. Well, it's a framework and flow and say, I want the program to say hi to the user. Okay. Well, that tells you exactly what you need to do. And once you know exactly what you need to do, that's just basic. It's just basic idea of just writing down the process of the computer typing out the words hello. Um, yeah, some of the stuff is going to require advanced knowledge of programming, even stuff I don't have. Uh, doesn't really change whether or not you understand the framework and flow first. You know, and you can have all of the code in the world. If you don't understand the framework and flow and the process, that code's useless. Kind of like the uh, end of Star Trek Nemesis. The framework and flow would be essentially Data's soul, right? Well, they had a copy of everything that was in Data that caused them to function, all of the code. They tried to put it in the mind of B4, and B4 was incapable of carrying out that code. So, framework and flow, that's what I'm going to be discussing, uh, as well as talking about how humanity sees the world, etc. Hi everyone. So this is 
absolutely not part one, but it's definitely a segment. I'm going to record these in segments, maybe 15 to 20 minute segments. So if I screw up in one segment, I don't have to re-record an hour's worth of me talking, or four hours worth of me talking, or even 30 seconds worth of me talking, depending on how long I talk. And as anybody else who has done podcasts knows, there's a good chance for you screwing up. Like just now I had a huge pause. (laughs) Suck it up. (laughs) I screw up a lot. And uh, I only go with what's passable enough to put out there on the internet. Anyway, so let's talk about artificial intelligence. Now, a lot of people have been arguing about what defines artificial intelligence. Well, you have two basic, uh, two basic functions, right? Enough to get a game out or react to various inputs. And then you have like data or R. Daniel Olivaugh from uh, the Foundation series, right? Anyway, to begin, video game AI has been out since uh, Pac-Man, right? Probably even earlier, like uh, Berserk, Berserk had very rudimentary AI, but uh, in terms of Pac-Man, the ghost had an artificial intelligence to respond to Pac-Man's position on the playing field. They didn't just randomly go places. Now, random is an important part of AI. There's a difference between random, such as flipping a coin, to decide between two uh, equal paths, and random, where all kinds of just weird shit happens, regardless of what the player does, right? With Pac-Man, you had a a handful of ghosts there. And uh, one ghost would go to like two dots ahead of Pac-Man's exact location. Another was to Pac-Man's exact location. And another was to, one of them was just running around wherever the fuck it wants to go, right? No AI, no real AI there. Just like, a, I'm walking around, Narf, I'm walking around, oh look, there's Pac-Man, I don't care, I'm going to go this way, <laughs> right? If anybody's played Pac-Man, they, they see that the one ghost that goes, I'm walking around, and if they go, fuck, he's going to attack me, and then he turns left instead of right. <laughs> um, I think it's uh, the red ghost. I used to know all the Pac-Man names by heart, but uh, I'm kind of tired. Can't really remember them now. Inky, Blinky, Pinky, and Clyde, I think. Um, I I don't know. Anyway, the point is, that's like basic form of AI. And it's pretty damn effective. I mean, you can beat the AI if you know the tricks on beating the AI, confusing the ghosts on where to go uh, by manipulating how they get their inputs. I mean, just watch, uh, you know, point climbers 
or watch, uh, you know, Billy Mitchell, and he explains, yeah, well, you could do it like this, this, and this, and then you could, you, you know, at the higher levels, you see Billy popping Pac-Man in the corner, and, you know, after manipulating the ghosts, and then all the ghosts are just kind of moving around in a circle, confused as fuck, right? Yeah. Um, but they're still responding on the player's input or the interaction from the player. Well, all but that one, essentially. Uh, that one just gets confused, just goes in a circle. Um, anyway, so those that's the basic definition. That's what you're working with. Then you have AI that's more complex, like uh, Madden. And, you know, a, a football game. By football, I mean actual football, not the soccer that the world decided to call football after America said, well, we already used the word soccer, took it from the Brits who created the game. Why the hell are you people to change in the name? You all are a bunch of idiots. I hate soccer. Anyway. So, uh, a Madden NFL football. The AI for how the computer behaves is something like 60% of it is all based off of the process and code of the original NFL Madden game on the uh, NES. Or maybe it wasn't called Madden back then, but the, the game on the NES. The guy who programmed it successfully sued Electronic Arts for withholding uh, future, uh, you know, residuals from future games. And that's because you only have a limited number of options for how the computer will behave. Essentially, the computer's behavior still needs to identify who has the ball, stop the ball from making it into the the goal zone of its home team and carry that ball into their goal zone along with kicks and a number of uh, football plays that have been statistically more successful against playing, you know, certain types of uh, uh, plays uh, than any other, right? Any other mixture. It's, uh, if I were to map down, map out the uh, uh, process and theory, then I would, you know, for, for just any, you know, just basic football, you know, the most successful plays are matched by these plays, most successful play, you know, or these plays are, mo are most successfully matched by these plays, uh, most successful plays are in this category, uh, least successful plays are in this category. Uh, you know, percentage of options of how many time, you know, how often to expect which plays to be done when. Uh, field uh, ownership, like where where the players are on the field. You know, uh, possession of territory, essentially. That's what I'm saying. Uh, field ownership, possession of territory. Same, different, different words, same concept. Another, you know, it means where the players are on the field, where the openings are. Openings are obviously where you want to go. You don't want to go where there are other uh, players. Uh, you know, that type of thing. 
if I were to map out all of the plays, you know, all those stuff, you know, all that stuff in, in terms of football, I wouldn't even need to get excessively detailed. The more detailed your AI, the less or the slower the AI will be to respond. And we're talking about the NES, right? An NES cartridge or uh, you know, Super Nintendo cartridge, whichever. I think he actually worked on the NES cartridge and then the uh, Super Nintendo cartridge. I'm not sure, I'd have to look it up again. But uh, the point is, you just say, well, this player, these characters, or these uh, uh, guys moving in this direction, and it is countered by these guys moving in this direction, and when they hit each other, you know, random thing. Sorry, that was a message to me. Anyway, so the, the point is, you only have a certain number of, of actions, and all you have to do is say, oh, it's clear over here, guys over here, move away from this individual, move away from this individual. You know, the computer basically drawing a line on the field of where the, uh, of where the character should be running, right? And no matter what, there's no real way to improve that. And you're talking just a few kilobytes of information, maybe just one or two code, pieces of code that are running uh, for each situation. I mean, the computer only has a couple of choices. And uh, that was, uh, there was a recent, uh, there's a recent video on YouTube and it's a very interesting study in different types of AI. Uh, the YouTube video was, uh, and I hope that wasn't a bad jump, you know, um, pause and start. Anyway, the, the YouTube video series was about, or video that was put out was Battle Chess Original versus the new Battle Chess that just came out. They have two distinctive AIs. And the original Battle Chess in fact, this has been a criticism among the chess community as far as AIs for chess players. Because the uh, older chess games were murderous. Like Chess Master 3000, Chess Master 4000, right? Bad chess. You had them on the highest difficulty, you were usually going to get your ass creamed. I mean, you'd have to be a master at it and just copying down moves from like Kasparov or or that Nazi Billy whatever his name was little kid turned out to be a Nazi when he grew up uh, you uh, you had just basic instructions really basic instructions on likelihood of what the player's going to do based off of their move here. And then making their, you know, the computer then makes its move to achieve the goal. Now, I don't know too much about the code itself because it's never been completely and fully explained, but battle chess on the, on cartridges like the NES uh, or on small you know, on the on the computer and like small little megabyte uh, 
you know, packages, uh, program packages, data packages, uh, you know, total file size, we're able to clean clocks of, of people without having to memorize all sorts of different strategies. The new chess games actually have, and they brag, a lot of them have bragged about it, uh, they, they function on two different concepts. One is like a, I can't pronounce the word, virtuistic, I think that that's it, kind of like the HAL program, where it tries to second, it, it tries to guess the entire strategy Instead of taking the best available move to it, the computer will try and thoroughly guess the strategy of the other player by actually trying to think ahead. Those are really easy to beat because they use logical, uh, they use a sort of logical analysis. Well, it's logical for the player to take this advantage. A lot of uh, chess programs will, um, you know, I'm not even sure if that's really the right definition for virtuistic, but uh, that's the word that's used. Anyway, the, uh, these programs will also sometimes brag about having pre-encoded ma grandmaster's moves, right? I guess to try and circumvent players using plays from grandmasters against the computer in the game. All right. Well, none of the original games would do that. Chess Masters sort of did that, but would do it less frequently than a lot of modern games. And it's usually just a selling point for people to think, I'm playing against a master or grandmaster. Well, they're not. They're playing against moves that a grandmaster made in a certain situation, which is not reflective of their own. And who knows, some of those moves are actually bad moves. Maybe maybe the computer uses a grandmaster move because it, it's a move from a grandmaster when the play field looks a certain way, and everybody recognizes that as, oh, ha, 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 Kasparov actually made that move, it was a total blunder back in such and such, and everyone now knows how to avoid that move. So, uh, God, I can't remember. I think the original Battle Chess beat the newer Battle Chess on comparable higher settings, and it lost on a lower setting. Or maybe it's vice versa. Anyway, um, when the newer chess, newer Battle Chess version lost whether it was the easy setting or the hardest setting. Whenever it lost, it lost big. Like, it was just cream. I think maybe it won, maybe the newer one won on the highest setting. I'd have to watch that video again. Uh, and when it won on the highest setting, it was a pretty close game. You know, which is fascinating because technically the original game, you know, just based off of uh, the programming and how the AI worked, it shouldn't have competed at that level. And when it was on the easier setting, 
I mean, it was just rolling over stuff. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is a lot of these programs that try to second guess human behavior are generally incompetent because they try and choose a logical path. And humans usually don't think logically. Right? Uh, especially more novice players. More advanced players might think, well, I have to do it exactly this way. You know, in, in some respects, novice players might just think, I want to move the knight because I think it's cool when he moves. You know what I mean? And that'll totally screw up uh, the computer when it's trying to second guess the player's move. But in the original battle chess, it didn't do that. It didn't really care about second guessing the player's move. It would just try and uh, calculate its own path to success. So if you like to move the knight because it was cool and you did it with the uh, newest version of the game, uh, the computer would probably make a huge mistake thinking, oh, well, the next logical move for them would be over here, and they'd be responding to a, a player that makes logical and intelligent moves, and the novice comes in and just kind of wipes the computer out, right? The original game would just not do that. So, those are other aspects that you have to consider, you know, consider when dealing with making an AI. And that could be whether or not you're writing about an AI, or if you're uh, programming an AI. Uh, because, I mean, let's not forget here, as I said before, planning and processes the, the most important step of creating an AI. So, if you're writing about an AI, you've planned the process out. You don't know any code, doesn't matter. You know how that AI is gonna function, period. So you need to understand the differences in these processes. All right, so I've tried to record this uh, before. This is my second or you know, second attempt. Um, I'm now going to try and refine uh, how I plotted out the AI for my game. Now, I don't remember if I said this in the previous section, but um, the programmer I hired insisted on using something like a, th this advanced form of machine learning for AI. And uh, he couldn't finish it. Hell, he couldn't even make a piece move correctly. He, well, no, I mean, there, there's, because he couldn't even get threat down. So my game is a, an abstract strategy game. And, uh, the best way to describe it is a classical board game, you know, like chess or Chinese chess. And I did say Chinese chess, not Chinese checkers. Uh, there's a, or, you know, you can also compare it to checkers or, you know, any type of 
war game like that. And chess is a war game. Well, in my model process, the computer has to identify unit threat. So enemy unit threat, friendly unit threat. How much threat is on any one specific square. The point value of the uh, units is used as the starting threat for the, or not threat, but starting value for the units. That value can be increased or decreased throughout gameplay based on a number of factors. Like if you're, if you're playing a harder mode, uh, the more that a player uses a type of piece, like let's say player B uses archers all the time, the higher the value is for, or for the uh, computer AI to want to kill those archers. You know, like clearly the uh, player B is using archers in a way that is successful to their strategy or key to their strategy. So the computer will give them just a few more point values over uh, the, uh, you know, like the archers and, and uh, soldiers are worth the same. Well, if the player is using archers specifically, the archers are going to be valued a little bit more. Like instead of one point, they'll have a value of like 1.1 or 1.3, which puts an edge on them in the total calculation. Uh, that doesn't mean that the computer is going to just go for the archers. I mean, all these points have to battle out. I mean, balance out. Battle out, balance out, whatever. Uh, the computer also has to determine whether the units, specific units that it owns, are in threat. You know, whether they're in threat to be taken. Whether or not, uh, you know, the enemy threat counterbalances the friendly threat or vice versa. And it's vice versa, not vice versa. It's vice versa. Um, just had to throw that out there. Uh, the, so the computer is evaluating all these factors. Depending on the difficulty level, there may be slight adjustments to those factors. Uh, the computer also has to determine the value of its own piece uh, that may be in threat or, you know, whatever, as opposed to the value of other pieces that the computer can take. So there are situations in this AI scheme where the computer's royal unit or general unit will sacrifice itself to take out a more valuable unit from the end or less valuable unit from the enemy. But it's also got that built-in evaluation to say, okay, I'm not going to do suicide kings, you know, where you just run in with a king to kill a pawn and then get killed by everything else. And it's a five-page document that I have. Version one, you know, as far as how I plot it out, uh, I have made adjustments here and there. Uh, throughout the years, so maybe it's like version 1.4. But in general, the process is the same. Evaluating the enemy's threat, evaluating the goal, 
evaluating uh, the enemy's prized pieces, you know, which is basically the goal, evaluating threat to its own pieces, evaluating um, the attrition or the loss suffered from sacrificial moves, that type of thing. And it's like a basic algebra equation. You take A plus B plus minus D uh, compared to E, F, and G. It's, it's as simple as that. I'm convinced that I can program it on something that will take just a few kilobytes, right? Not megabytes, kilobytes for the AI code. In addition to that, you know, for the assassin, uh, there's also something called a fog of war. And, uh, well, it could also, it, you know, I've also been playing around with the idea of adding a fog of war essentially for other pieces on the board based off of the difficulty setting for the AI. Like, the, uh, the more difficult, the more exact the numbers are for the AI. The, the least difficult or the easiest settings are probably, you know, tend to group like cavalry units as being the same value as soldiers. Well, obviously they're not. But that will prompt the computer when it has to make a random decision. Okay, I have a number of prime targets here. I'm going to make a random decision. Uh, you know, on a harder, harder difficulty, it might say, okay, there are only two prime units here. Now, this unit is, you know, I'm closer to such and such here or closer to such and such there. And it'll take the most prime unit. Um, in an easier game, it might be, okay, instead of two prime units, there are five or six, and I'm just going to take uh, one through six. You know, so depending on the difficulty, and obviously you can adjust the difficulty. I've also thought about uh, changing the AI. Well, actually, I, this was my original plan. When you play against different characters, uh, the AI will favor certain units to attack, favor more aggressive stances. And yeah, there is, there is like a, a variable there if the computer wants to be more aggressive or more defensive. So more aggressive, it will take a few more risks than the defensive one. But by a few more risks, I mean like a half a point or maybe a point in value uh, to offset any random choice, you know. Uh, and when I, when I say point in value, I mean like uh, e, the variable for E of risk factor uh, is reduced by one point. That's a minus one to E and plus one to attacking, you know, preferred units. So if preferred unit instead of, you know, when a, a player uses archers all the time, instead of it going like up like point oh one, point oh two, uh, it will go up like point one. Point three, you know, every time he uses it, so that the most favored units are being aggressively attacked more in instances where the computer has a choice. Now, um, you know, so I already decided on that sort of thing, and I was playing around with the idea of creating a custom opponent where you can have, where you can adjust the slide on a sliding scale, uh, the values that the computer sees fit to attack more often than not. And in that regard, 
it would also be kind of like a debug mode, you know, thinking about creating a debug mode just to try and find the best balance for the algorithm, but also giving, leaving it in for players to have a more uh, involved approach to playing their game. You know what I mean? And it's always fun to mess around with difficulty, right? Like that's one of the reasons why Doom has been so popular is that there's a lot of customization involved. So this way players can customize AI, try to see if they can find a more aggressive AI or a very specific type of AI type, you know, game. Like let's say, let's play horses only. So you reduce the value of all the other pieces. Like, we're not gonna use them, then you only play horses. That'd be a fun game, or maybe you're allowed to pick just only units on the board, right? The point is, my approach to the game is a very mathematical slash analytical approach that has uh, a random choice value at the end if the computer can't make a decision, right? Computer is looking at it, okay, these two pieces are equally valuable. All right, computer wants to move to X square, which is where the opponent general is right now. So there are two possible or two prime uh, opponents that the computer can take. The numbers are equal, computer flips a coin. I've played against my own AI uh, in terms of doing the math manually, manually playing the game out. And it worked as far as I'm concerned. And that's also how I fixed some issues that arose, tweaking the numbers and how, how the uh, equation works. But it feels kind of like you're playing against somebody who has at least a rudimentary knowledge of the game and they're offering you a challenge by using your own moves against you in a way where they're not analyzing their, your moves, they're, they're just taking note. Oh, you're using archers, I'm going to hit the archers now. So when you're, your careful plan of making this huge umbrella of archers to take out the computers nullified because the computer says, I'm gonna kill your archers now. Like, they're more valuable to you than your general. So that means you're going to, I'm gonna kill the archers and it'll weaken your position and your general will be open. That's all with just changing a number, just a little tiny increment. That's why I say that the AI is, you know, if it were to be programmed in that way, uh, it'd be very small in terms of, of uh, kilobytes, you know, versus megabytes, hundreds of megabytes. Well, the programmer I hired wanted to do Q learning, machine learning. And, you know, and something else. I think I can mix them together. All of the new video games are using it. Dude couldn't even figure out how to get the archers to move. Right? To explain to you how the archers move. Archers have two uh, sub-actions. So you use one action, like token, to move an archer. The archer can move up to one square, or you know, let me explain this. Uh, let me start the explanation over again. The archer can stand still and shoot up 
two, two squares in any direction. Or the archer can move one square and shoot up to one square in any direction. Or the archer can move up to two squares in any direction. The archer need not shoot in a turn. The archer need not move a full two squares in a turn. An archer could, you know, if you're saying, I'm moving this archer, going to move him one square, well, that could be it, right? Up two, right? Very simple way to program it. He couldn't figure it out. And the cannons, I mean, he, he eventually figured it out, but it took him way too long. The cannons are similar, and he never got the cannons to work. And it's all just a step-by-step -step process. And I had to explain to him the step-by-step process multiple times, and he couldn't follow the process. He just thought, don't worry, the code will sort it out. Like, no, no, it won't. Process is king. Um, and yeah, and like I said, he had to settle out of court with me. He took a lot of money from me and caused a lot of damage to my business. But in general, the point was about the AI. His idea of a Q-learning AI, that's a lot of memory being used. I looked at his plan, and his plan, while it could be specific, of developing very intricate patterns of, uh, and, uh, patterns of analysis in how Q-learning, you know, gathers data, says, well, it knows not to do this here, not to do that there. Um, the idea of second-guessing your opponent is very nearly impossible in my game. And in trying to map out the flow, uh, you know, the, the pathway, the logical progression of flow for his plan, at least according to the do uh, documents and references that he showed me, not only would the AI be pushing a gigabyte, but it would be collecting so much data that it would be stuck. You know, it might actually take the AI several minutes to process a decision on which, which piece to take. Now, there's a difference between making sure the computer doesn't embarrass a player, right? Like saying, the, the computer will make its decision in the first second of its turn. Well, you don't want to embarrass the player, so you add thinking time. And thinking time might be, uh, you know, like let's say you're playing against a, another character, you know, the computer's represented by a character uh, or not. Thinking time would be based off of how many turns that uh, you've been, you know, you've been playing. Uh, maybe about 30 to 45, you know, start out at 30 seconds or 20, 20 seconds. Hmm. Maybe you see the computer trying to highlight a unit and then it unhighlights it, highlights another unit, unhighlights it, and then makes a move, right? And the move is a slow, not a necessarily slow, but like how anybody would move a piece on a board. It wouldn't just magically appear 
the unit's teleporting the moment it's the computer's turn, you know, in some sort of speed game thing. And that's because people like to enjoy the experience. You know what I mean? People like, when they play a game, they like to enjoy the experience and process that it takes to learn it. Learn how to play or have somebody play against them. So there's going to be a whole simulation there. Uh, you know, just a few kilobyte simulation. Uh, highlighting the units that the computer has essentially identified as key units. And then the computer makes its move. So if you really pay attention, you might actually be able to learn how the computer AI is thinking or get a basis for it. So it's like you're kind of looking into another person's face and you see them eyeballing, should I move this kit unit or that unit, right? That's engagement. And uh, that was the plan, you know, have an engagement with how the uh, pieces move. Well, cue learning is like, it will constantly, if anybody's ever watched Speed Bullet on, uh, I think that's the thing, on YouTube. Oh, it takes thousands of attempts for cue learning to function. I would literally have to process a, 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 thousands of games for the AI to be where I want it to be before shipping my game out. And so that's a huge data file of knowledge that the computer has learned through failing in beating itself or other players, right? So that's the first problem with his idea of cue learning. The second problem with uh, hertuistic her or whatever type of plan that he wanted to use, or maybe it wasn't hertuistic, maybe it was, uh, I think he called it something else, was that he wanted the computer to second-guess the player's next move. So, sorry, I had to stop the recording again. At, um, let's see if I can remember where I was. I was talking about the cue learning and the uh, whatever it was that, uh, whatever model that uh, my ex-programmer was thinking of using. So... The, oh yeah, the model of predicting player movement or player choices. The problem with that is it works for chess, as he kept bragging about. Works for chess, works for chess, works for checkers, but doesn't work for games where there's no such thing as move slash counter move. Chess is all about memorization and move-counter-move. Unless you go the basic threat route like um, the Battle Chess games did or uh, Chess Master games. But even then, Chess Master would, you know, had a huge library of moves from Grand Masters. So if you weren't, I mean... It, it doesn't really work in a game where you have three move, you know, forms of movement in a turn and a field of battle that's wider than the armies. That's the way 
my game is set up. See, move, counter, move requires one move, one turn. So if the enemy moves their piece and is suddenly ahead, you have to block their piece and get ahead. In my game, there's way too many variables. You could, it's very difficult to always be ahead unless you're somehow capable of fully dominating the entire landscape. Since the landscape is wider than your army, uh, you know, I mean, there is one pawn for, for every square in a single row on the, um, on the uh, board for chess. But in my game, if you're playing uh, on a uh, 17 by 17 uh, size board, you only have nine archers. So you have one archer for half of the squares in a row on my board. You're not able to have your archers line from one end to the other, fully dominating an entire width of the board with one single type of unit. Now, there are a lot of units, but they're also spaced out, essentially like an army is. You're not marching uh, shoulder to shoulder against the wall like you are in chess. So chess is very constrained, very limited, small battlefield, large armies. I mean, um, it's uh, eight by eight, this is 64 squares, right? And you have 32 of those squares used by pieces, right? You know, you got eight, eight on one row, eight on another. Then the opponent has eight in one row, eight in the other. That's basically half the board are pieces. You have to move counter move because every, everybody's essentially covering the board. So... He didn't understand the statistics involved, no matter how many times I tried to explain to him. And that creates a situation where the computer playing against a player for like the first 100 times isn't going to be able to guess how the player moves, especially if the player is a newbie beginner the first time it plays and then, or he, he she, it, whatever gender plays and slowly gets better. The computer has no basis for how the player is going to think if it, if, or plan ahead if the computer is evaluating moves from the player's first game on through their most recent one. Mm -hmm. Alright, so the uh, there's obviously a discussion there about how right my programmer was and how wrong he was. Because Q-learning for creating an AI that can beat a game is 100% viable under certain circumstances. Uh, whatever... I don't even know if it was heroistic. I'd have to look it up again. We, what The term that he was using... 
I think he's using a different term though. And I'm just confusing um, what he was trying to say. It's just that I can't, I can't find the website that he originally linked to me. But, uh, you know, whatever process he wanted to use, and predictive, basically it's just predictive programming. And there are a couple different ways to approach predictive programming, right? So I'll just leave it at that. So the predictive model that he wanted to use where he addressed or uh, the idea of predicting, of the, of the computer predicting the player's next move is viable under certain situations. Now we're talking about a game where people, you know, if, if they take a long time playing the game, they're probably going to wind up playing for an hour unless they really cream the computer, in which case it'll be five minutes or eight minutes. But that's about the, the average for the long version of the game. The short version of the game is like a three to 15 minute game, right? Uh, sometimes you can play for half an hour, but uh, usually not. You know, that basic type of situation. You don't want to be sitting there while the computer takes an hour to try and predict your next move while trying to evaluate your past movements right? You absolutely don't want to create a game like that or a program like that. Unless, here's a caveat, you're not really going to be shipping it out to millions of people. I mean, take for example, Big Blue or Blue 2, the giant thinking computer that could beat, quote unquote, Kasparov and, uh, you know, can beat Kasparov or other Grandmaster uh, in a game of chess. Well, even, you know, it was an ex exhibition match. Kasparov says, they're, they're giving help to the computer. You know, th they technically were. They were adjusting the computer's programming. Kasparov was going to beat Big Blue until they adjusted Big Blue's programming to fix how Big Blue was thinking. Well, the moment IBM did that and they said, well, Kasparov agreed to that. Yeah, well, Kasparov says, yeah, but he changed his whole style of playing. I have to have a completely different uh, strategy for going after him. That actually highlights a lot of problems with AI. When you try and get too thinky in certain respects. The more thinky you get, the less versions of that AI or less portable versions uh, you're gonna have. Because it's like you're creating an individual. Think about it, trying to copy every single experience and replicate every single experience that any one individual, let's say cat, like my, 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 my house cats, they, my, my sweet, both of them abused in different ways, rescued them. Um, extremely different experiences. I had to treat them completely differently. There's no way I could replicate their experiences. No way I could force, you know, get another kitty and have the kitty abused in the exact same way my kitty was abused. Not that I would want to, I absolutely wouldn't, right? 
But my point is, you even if you do that, you're not going to wind up with the same cat or the same behavior. Period. Same thing with humans. You can't force the same experiences onto a clone of your brother or yourself. Let's say you cloned yourself. You want them to think and act and behave exactly like you behave. You would have to be incredibly involved in attempting to make them behave and react to situations that are constructed exactly to how you were, to, to ones that you experienced. And even if you have like a holodeck program that's exactly the same and you raise two children up with the same experiences, there are random choices that everybody faces in their life that could be determined by hormones, uh, pheromones, or, or whatever, even temperature of the air, that will help alter those choices or maybe just internalization. I mean, nobody knows how to control imagination. Well, if somebody was, has the imagination of doing something else or thinking something else or a thought pops into their head, you can't guarantee it, the same thought will pop into both people's heads. You know, so obviously my message out there is don't abuse people. Don't, don't abuse kitties. Don't abuse anything like that. I don't want anybody to take my hypothetical as any sort of condoning of abuse. I'm just giving an example of, you know, of uh, no matter whether it's a good experience or a bad experience, you cannot replicate the same result with two different individuals or even if a cloned individual or an individual that's supposed to be exactly the same with the same brain waves. You know, um, there are a couple of great Star Trek episodes on that topic. One of them was the creation of Thomas Riker, you know. So no matter what, you cannot create, uh, you know, when you're going in depth into creating a highly thinking, you know, AIs or, uh, you know, really hardcore AIs, you can't really duplicate their processes. If you have one random number or a floating point integer or a drop in power, you're going to alter how that computer AI behaves. And for anybody saying, computers are people, they don't have imagination, they don't have this, this, this. You can essentially utilize or recognize floating point in integers and that the buffer that's used, you know, the, the upper memory buffer. That's it's basically like imagination. You have random shit floating around in the computer. And random shit floating around in the computer can cause all sorts of fun reactions. And any computer programmer out there, if you think that I'm full of shit, you're not as you're not as involved in computer programming as you think you are. You know code, so you don't understand computer behavior. And uh you know, to uh, speedrunners out there, or glitch runners, glitch runners out there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, you can trigger certain glitches at certain times, but there are also times where there are random glitches that just fucking appear out of nowhere. Where do they come from? 
Is it a tin whisker? For people who don't know what tin whiskers are, that's where, um, you know, because tin is used in a lot of uh, uh, chipsets. Uh, and tin, when it oxidizes, grows crystals. They're called whiskers. A tin whisker is basically a crystal that has connected with another, another part of the circuit board. Because tin is, will attract itself to itself, right? So when you're growing a tin crystal, if you have two different tin crystals, you don't, or, or crystal pods next to each other, you can get them to connect and make arches. You know, it's kind of, kind of fun um, to fool around with stuff like that. Uh, growing crystals, I mean, I, I've seen it. I haven't done it. I, I did make crystals with uh, ammonia before. That's that's fun. Uh, but I mean, I've seen people replicate and show how tin whiskers can gravitate. Uh, due to the flow of electricity from one to another. Tin whiskers create all sorts of fun shit that you never thought was possible and will often destroy circuit boards as a result, right? Uh, I, I have, you know, there are people out there like myself who essentially are beta testers or live testers. <laughs> who find all sorts of bugs that should not exist because the programming is correct, right? The pointer says, there's nothing wrong with this code. The pointer says, go to this line. This line is perfect. It should be perfect. But there's a tree floating five feet above the fucking air. Okay, delete the tree, right? There's something wrong with, with whatever is in the computer with calculating that set of coordinates. They try and create a new tree with that exact same accordance, five feet in the air. Then they move it one coordinate over to the left, so it's not the same spot, and the tree is right there on the ground where it should be. Why the fuck is that going on? Usually indicates that somebody screwed up somewhere. Not always. Sometimes it's just a matter of uh, just random shit that happens while the computer's processing something. You know, I've had calculators uh, it's on Windows. I've had calculators, you know, I'm doing, you know, using the calculator quite a bit. You know, so all that information's going into the buffer where it belongs. And, you know, I hit clear. I type in three plus four and I get 10. What the fuck? So computers, somehow, even though I'm pressing clear, that part of the buffer is being cleared, but maybe it's a floating point integer or something. And I have to restart the computer in order to calculate, or I'm using, I use a different calculator. It does the same thing. You know, I have a couple of different programs. Like why is that, you know, there, there's obviously a bug here somewhere. Memory buffer, maybe it got a little bit too full and it's pulling numbers out. You know, you have all sorts of glitches. Sometimes it's bad code, sometimes it's tin whiskers, sometimes the code looks 100% correct, but you know, like the tree floating five feet above the air, maybe you hard code the tree with a different calculation and the tree is at that exact same spot you want it to be 
in the ground uh, instead of using pointers. Pointers like to go through a couple different functions, right? And uh, I, I never really like using pointers. I know people are going to say pointers are more efficient, but pointers also have um, too many, too much potential for goofing up. If the buffer gets full, the buffer might send the pointer in the wrong direction. You know, if you if you hard code it or you do a different code where it has to methodically process everything to the T, it will take longer. You know, so obviously you're going to have to use pointers when you're doing, you know, uh, complex arrays and pointers when you're doing an MMO, creating a giant MMO. But uh, when you're on a smaller scale, the less you have to do with floating points or essentially the computer's imagination, which is what I like to refer to it, uh, the less you have to deal with that section of the computer memory, the better because there's no room for error. You won't have a RAM chip decide, oh, this here is stuck in memory and I'm just going to go ahead and use it. You know? And uh, before anybody talks about how perfect chips are, chipsets are, uh, chipsets are beyond what they used to be. They now require their own software to function. And that software could be thought of as being 100% correct, or maybe it is 100% correct, uh, as far as using you know pointers and whatever to process things properly. But then when stuff starts to get full, when the buffer starts to get full, when, when you have tis and tin whiskers jumping, whatever, uh, that process gets interrupted or redirected. And uh, computers are just not as infallible people want to believe you know and to bring up a common thing said in sci-fi it's 100% true we're living biological computers and our brains you know, there's a lot about our brains that we don't know a lot about our brains and neurology we have struggled to understand and there are things that our brains do where they jump from you know electricity jumps from one neuron to the other neuron or imagination inserts itself into our thinking process and a normal logical thought becomes something else, right? So, um, that's basically what you'll have to think about. Are you programming an AI on a small scale? Are you doing it on a big scale? Do you need to access essentially what I, what I like to call as the computer's imagination, you know, various buffers. You could, they're all different names, different parts of the computer, different buffers. Anywhere where you have a floating point integer or an open array, you have the potential for numbers to exist even when they shouldn't exist. Uh, whether it's an accident, the buffer from the computer accidentally sticks a number in an array for whatever reason. Uh, the, and, and please don't tell me, perfect code never does that. I've had a Hello World program run differently on two different computers before. And whatever happened, 
the program was not at fault. It might have been uh, any number of things. Uh, maybe there was coding in the computer. Maybe it was a power fluctuation. But I've had computers, two different computers run Hello World differently. You know, at least on one cycle. Then they both ran perfectly. It's like, what the fuck happened? When I first ran Hello World, it, it, it had the O and the L backwards on this computer, but not the other computer. And it was like separated by a line. And then I ran it again and it ran perfectly. Like, where's the proof that it happened? I didn't have any. I wasn't recording it. Back then, you couldn't really record shit like that. All I could say is, well, you know, I ran it once on this computer and it did that and I never got it to repeat that bug again. What the hell happened? I don't know. So there is a chance for things to go wrong even when everything is, seems to be perfect. And you know, just like with, with regular human thinking, you know, if you, if you try to confuse somebody, if you try to intimidate them, then you ask them a question like, what's your name? They're thinking about a different question. They might answer, Bob, uh, Aaron, uh, I mean, Bob. Their name's really Bob. They answered Aaron. Why'd you answer Aaron? I, I, was, first, I was thinking about the last person that served me at a McDonald's. Their name is Aaron. You know, you're, you're yelling at me. You're freaking me out. And yet, there, there are situations where essentially you can do the same to the computer. You can cause the computer to freak out or an AI. So, I've been really in depth here to try and explain everything. Um, the computer programmer I hired, he wasn't entirely wrong. <laughs> if, if I was creating Big Blue and I wanted the computer to learn how to defeat every play style out there, cue learning, tertuistic learning, whatever. Stick that, stick that combination that he wanted to do in there. Run it for like six months. Simulation after simulation, simulation. Take it out, play everybody, decimate them. Huge, gigantic computer with a lot of, with a lot of processing power, right? Small little computer. I want people to be able to download the game in under five minutes. Um, and uh, hell, I mean, five minutes even then—that's pretty long anymore. I remember a day where you had—you know—I remember the days where you had to take six hours to download Doom, right, or nine hours. I know some people said I spent two full days trying to download it because of all these interruptions and my modem. And yeah, okay. Now people want everything fast. Well, I want people to download the thing pretty quickly. You know, the art assets are going to be the biggest part of the game file, and the AI should be as simple as possible. So if anything happens, I can, like somebody finds a bug, I can fix it. Somebody figures out some way to exploit it, I'm going to change it. I'm going to figure out exactly what's the math going on here that somebody could exploit. Oh, I see. They're moving these pieces and confusing the computer as to their values. Okay, well, I'm going to change the value just a little bit. And if the computer recognizes the piece is doing this, the threat level is going to, you know, go up. But not so far that that correction will result in 
than being able to exploit the computer all the other ways, right? So small, short, condensed, basic concepts of danger, Will Robinson, or safety, or objective is there, or must protect our base, that type of thing. And if it's effective enough to give players a challenge, maybe a unique challenge every time they play, maybe toss in a little randomness so that when the player plays the computer again, the computer's not going to open with the same move. You know, uh, they're not going to, it's not going to open with the same strategy. And uh, that's the way to handle that. Uh, Hertuistic learning or cue learning or however the types of learning you want to add, that's for something that's really in-depth, you know? And a lot of these AI programs, they're so in-depth that they're being developed for traffic monitoring, among other things, right? Real-world applications. But even then, remember the most critical rule, the most critical rule in thinking. This is for humans, this is for computers, this is for animals. It's for, you know, humans are animals. This is for everything. The more information you bog yourself down with, the less you're going to be able to see and the less effective you're going to be unless it's the information that is solely critical to your function. That's where people say, uh, you can't see the forest for the trees, right? You're, you're, you're seeing, it's, it's where you're inside the forest and all you do is you see a bunch of trees in front of you. So they're all obstacles. You, you can't really see beyond the tree because it's blocking your sight. Well, if you're on the roadway and you're away from it, you can actually see the whole forest and say, oh, I know exactly how that forest is laid out. Now I know how to proceed through the forest. Information is a forest. And, you know, one of the biggest failures, one of the absolute biggest failures in AI or information gathering, and it does deal with AI, Project PRISM by the NSA. They wanted to gather all the information from all the people uh, using cell phones and whatnot to try and make sure they have a record on everybody, right? When they were called to Congress, you know, when Edward Snowden, Snowden blew the whistle, he thought he was protecting, you know, privacy and secrecy. And to a degree he was, but at the same time, uh, he wasn't. So it was like half and half. So Edward Snowden blew the whistle, depending on how much of a hero you make out of him or villain. That's up to you. The pro uh, by the time he blew the whistle, though, the NSA had already been running it for months. Months and months. They'd been planning stages for years. The NSA was not able to produce one single case of conviction that was directly, that was, uh, whose direct, was a direct, pardon me, was a direct benefit of operating PRISM, 
which could have, which could not have been done in any other fashion. Like I, I, every single case that the that was produced that said, well, th this resulted in a conviction, was actually supported, or primarily facilitated by, non-prism information, and the prism information itself was either redundant or added no value to the case. And that's because the NSA, the whole division running PRISM, was inundated with so much information, there was no real way to analyze the information and conduct a proper uh, investigation, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or evaluation. There was no great analysis that came out of PRISM, which produced a conviction. None. I mean, if you have, uh, maybe, maybe there were secret convictions. I know that in terms of the spy world, um, you will have secret trials. There have been secret trials for spies carried out in all countries for, you know, since countries existed, right? And that deals with spies, you know, like, uh, okay, uh, this spy confound this spy. A lot of sensitive information is here. If they had a public trial, they'd have to, like, black out all, but this person here who you can't see and is, uh, you can't even, we can't even tell you their nationality is on trial for doing a spy thing that may or may not be illegal. That would be the extent of the public knowledge of the spy trial. Stuff like that happened in the Cold War a lot. And I only know that because some secret trials have been made public. <laughs> so maybe the NSA in their Operation Prism managed to produce information that resulted in a spy trial. Maybe. I don't know. And if you want to argue one trial was successful out of 300 million people being monitored, it's really, really shitty use of resources. Okay, that's great. An AI discovered one criminal out of 300 million that could be prosecuted. And that's because the AI was inundated with information so massive, it couldn't process anything. And you know, in, in some chess programs, if you ever play on an old 486 or 386 or 286, especially on a 286, um, there are some chess programs where if you make a grandmaster move that has 50 different responses, computer may not respond for an hour. That's because for its build, it can't process all that information. Well, at least not quickly. And that's even a basic model. You know, it's all about how much you want to process and how much information you want to take in. So I'm gonna end this with a statement of 
unless you're working in the Department of Defense. Well, even if you are working in the Department of Defense, and even if you do, are are if you do plan on using a big blue, or a prism, to try and assist you. Focus on your goal. Focus on only the information required for your goal. Don't store phone numbers from Aunt Hilda who may have been deceased for 10 fucking years, right? That's not functional information. Now you could argue, well, they might have used her, her name as an alias for identity thieves. Okay, well, don't bother with that shit. Keep a separate data. You know, uh, you you can you can go ahead and look on databases for deceased people and past telephone records. You can go ahead and do that. All that stuff is public knowledge. You don't need to collect it in your AI program. You keep your AI program focused on the most immediate information that you need. Everything else is public information. Everything else, it should not be part of your process unless you are specifically looking for that specific sector. And that's when you instruct your AI to say, okay, well, all this other public information, I'm going to direct my AI now. Now we know this person's using dead people for identities. Okay, let's look for dead people uh, identities and their critical information that matches this MO, people who have been dead for 10 years suddenly reappear. Let's find that Highlander, right? That's the only time where you give that your program access to that information and then you say, okay, enough. If, if you can't find anything and you, or maybe you find the guy, you convict him, you separate the AI from that information. It's like, a person going out to check a library book. How many books do you have in your house? Only the books that most interest you. You want to find a book that, that you don't have that will interest you? Check on uh, Amazon, maybe. Uh, you want to check it out first. Go to your library. You don't need to own a bookstore to have access to knowledge. Your AI does not need to own a bookstore to have access for knowledge. And at the end of the day, regardless of what you're programming, your own human, uh, your own data, your own um, Robbie the Robot, your own uh, video game AI code, or your own national security uh, robot to control the world, or your own Skynet, remember, keep it simple, stupid. Kiss it all the way up. Keep it simple, stupid. And every programmer out there, even the most advanced ones today, they have moments of stupidity. And those moments are usually go with, oh man, I am so totally excited about doing it this way. Let me, let me go full on. I mean, I had to struggle with that when I was trying to figure out how to code my game. Small little game, Baby Eater. It took me a couple months because uh, well, I was learning. I programmed my game as I was learning various aspects. And I, even though I was, I, I kept seeking help from my friend who was a programmer, kept saying, keep it simple. Like, yeah, dude, you're right. I, I needed him to pull me back. You know, everybody needs somebody to pull them back. You know, it's like the engineer's dilemma. I could do it if I just give it one more chance. I could do it if I just, I mean, 10 years later, 
I could do it if I give it just one more chance, right? It's the engineer's dilemma, the desire to constantly pursue something that you have failed at just because you can't believe that you failed at it, right? Sometimes you just got to walk away. Sometimes you just got to say, okay, cutting that out. Now, people who play card games, collectible card games, I'm sure you know, you know that issue. I want to play with all these cards. They're so cool. I could only choose 40 of the 3,000 I own. Fuck. Yeah, keep it simple. You know. Um, so keep it simple. Keep it on task. Keep your scope in mind. And extensive, expansive AI may actually mean you just alter the focus a little bit. Anyway, so that's the general concept on how to focus when you're creating your AI. And uh, the next segment, I said, uh, I, I guess uh, from now on, so I kind of caught and talked about several different t concepts in, in this segment, if you're downloading audio segments. Uh, so now I'm going to talk about building like a human thinking machine. I'm going to talk about emotions here. So, um, I think I'm going to put in a commercial break right now. I'm going to see if I can do that. It's going to be the same commercial you heard at the beginning. Uh, you know what? No. No, I'm going to break this up into two parts. So uh, next part is going to be uh, next episode. I'm going to break this up into another episode. Anyway, so you just heard me blather for five minutes about what I'm going to do. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. I hope you take care. hope I made sense. And uh, let's start talking about emotions and how to make decisions and what is pain and all that stuff on my next podcast. Because computers, the whole thing of, we don't feel pain, we don't feel happiness, that's total bullshit. Computers actually do. But it's not expressed in the way humans express it. Anyway, I'm going to go. Have fun. Take care. Love you all. Bye.